I was in Moldova last week in Eastern Europe. Our church has served there since 2007 in a variety of ministries. We currently have mission partnerships in the north and the south of the country in the Felesht and the Kahul districts. Uh, we serve with faithful brothers and sisters there who are working to make disciples, plant churches, and grow the kingdom of God. Uh, one of the village churches that we helped plant continues to grow, and a new building is underway to accommodate the ministry, and that's a great blessing. That was the video that I sent last week for you to see just a short clip of. Uh, this summer, we have the opportunity to support the ministry there of reaching and serving as many as 1,000 children and youth through summer camps and ministries. And I plan to go more in-depth on our involvement there at the midweek service this week. Uh, Moldova also shares 612 miles of a border with Ukraine. So please continue to pray for them. We appreciate your prayer concerns and your giving and your participation and your interest in what God is doing in that part of the world. And I look forward to telling you more about it uh, this coming week. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on that ministry as well as the word that we're going to consider together in just a moment. Fathers, we bow before you today. We do so with thanksgiving and praise. We lift up especially the Moldova ministry to you. We thank you for the faithful brothers and sisters that are there reaching the villages and the cities with the good news about Jesus, making disciples, planting churches where there are none and seeing your kingdom advance and grow. We pray for your continued hand of protection upon them. Thank you for their faithfulness to you, their encouragement to us. And I pray that our partnership there would bear much fruit, that many lost young people would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Those who know you would grow in their faith, and that we would be blessed to be a part of it. Now as we turn our attention to your word, we're thankful that we can be workers in your field of service. You have called us out of darkness and into light so that we might share the good news about Jesus down the street and around the world. And we are thankful, Lord, for your grace to us and the privilege we have to know you and to understand your direction for our lives through your word. Bless us now. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what you would want us to learn. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you on this subject, workers for God who are not ashamed. The text is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. So if you'll go ahead and make your way there, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, and we'll go through verse 19. Here's what the Word of God says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. 
verse 19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. I believe verse 15 is the key verse in this passage, and we're going to look at it directly and in depth here in just a few moments, but I want us to think about the significance of what is being taught here. Timothy was to do his best to correctly handle the word of truth, and we are to do the same. Verse 15 is also the theme verse for the Awana Children's Ministry. Awana is an acronym for approved workmen are not ashamed. Awana is a part of my call to ministry story. I served in the Awana ministry for several years before I answered the call to ministry, along with serving on the South Florida Awana Ministry Advisory Board. And it was very impactful for me thinking about what God's call was on my life. A man by the name of Art Rohrheim along with a pastor named Lance Doc Latham, founded, co-founded Awana in 1950. They were serving at the time at a place called the Northside Gospel Center in Chicago. Mr. Rohrheim was the youth director, and Reverend Latham was the pastor of the Northside Gospel Center in Chicago. Emily and I had the opportunity to travel to Chicago for a Discover Awana event years ago, it was in part uh, consideration of if we would go further with serving in Awana ministry along with what we were already doing in our local church. But at any rate, we had the opportunity to meet Art Rohrheim in his office in Chicago at the Awana headquarters. At the time, he was in his 70s. He was still reporting to the office each day. Uh, he was very gracious. It was a meaningful time for us just to get to talk to him for a few minutes he was working diligently, continuing to lead the ministry, and he went home to be with the Lord ultimately in 2018 at the age of 99. I had the opportunity to see him one other time. I was at a graduation at Liberty University, and I was down on the main field, and I knew that they were going to be recognizing him and honoring him for his impact through Awana. Uh, so I made my way through the crowd to where he was. And had an opportunity to speak to him again because the first time I had met him, I was considering full-time ministry. And when I met him the second time, I had been in ministry for a number of years. And I was able just to express my appreciation to him for his faithfulness and the impact that he had made on me. He was a man who was a humble servant. He was an incredible man who memorized most of the Bible himself. So he was not just telling other people that the scripture was important he actually took it to heart and practiced what it was that he taught. Because of his vision and Reverend Latham's vision, last year, Awana reached and engaged more than 5 million people, 5 million children in 133 countries with the goal of helping them belong to and become more like Jesus Christ with a focus on the Word of God. With verse 15 that is before us today, as the focal verse and really the driving emphasis of what the ministry is all about. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives Timothy a directive. And in Ephesus, Timothy, the ministry protege of Paul, had to confront difficulties. And the major issue that he was dealing with 
was false teaching. To be approved as a worker for God who is not ashamed means to be tested and found genuine, not counterfeit. The word approved is the same word that was used to describe gold or silver that had been purified or money that was genuine and was not counterfeit. There's also a directive here for every follower of Jesus. We're to live with a constant awareness of our accountability to the Lord to prove ourselves, to demonstrate ourselves as faithful. Our aim, both individually and collectively, is to please God with our lives. Not because we have to or simply out of a sense of obligation, but out of an understanding of the privilege that we have to have been called into God's family through the blood of Jesus and by his grace that is super abundant in our lives. And we are honored. It is a privilege to be able to serve God in that way and to be thankful to him for the grace that he's given to us and to live our lives for his glory. So I want to ask and answer this question in the next few moments that we have together. How can we be workers for God who are not ashamed? In the first way is this, workers for God who are not ashamed will consistently remind people. Look again at verse 14, remind them of these things. To remind is to cause a person to remember, to think of something that you already know, to bring to mind something that you've already been taught, but to bring it to the forefront for the purpose of emphasis as well as application to your life. And in the preceding section, the word remember is also used. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Salvation is in Christ Jesus. And Paul quotes from an ancient hymn in verses 11 through 13. He says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And then verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, one of the things that comes up so often, especially in the modern age that we live in, is that churches sometimes lose sight of the main thing. There is a temptation to believe that the word of God is not enough, that the word of God is not sufficient, that it won't attract people enough that people won't listen unless we give them something that is novel and interesting and modern. And churches get into this trap of trying to be relevant and as a result, get completely off track from the main thing and from the focus of God's word. Now, an extreme example of this is a church called Transformation Church in Oklahoma. It is led by the so-called pastor, Mike Todd. Now, Mike Todd has well over a 100 million views on his YouTube channel. Thousands of people go to this church. So this is not a small footprint. This is a significant reach that this man has. They put on an extravagant Easter service recently called Ransom. One writer described it this way. The celebration, which went viral online, included covers of Keisha and Beyonce material, stage lighting and pyrotechnics reminiscent of a Hollywood awards ceremony, and dances that can be compared to Sam Smith's infamous unholy song. 
There were sexual innuendos, and some noted that the performance was outright blasphemous. Mike Todd, when he was asked about this, said, we're going to go to the edge. And they said, Pastor, how far on the edge are we going to go? And I said, we're going to do everything short of sin. Now, I would like to tell you that that is an anomaly, that there aren't many people that are going in that direction, but that would not be true. There are many churches that do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Evidently, some don't believe that the Son of God being crucified and raised from the dead is enough, and that is a problem. Doctrine matters. What we believe matters because it impacts us eternally and it impacts us in the here and now. The word doctrine comes from a Latin word, which means that which is taught. Doctrine means instruction, especially as it relates to application. It is defined in part as the good and necessary inferences drawn from the implicit or explicit teaching of the scripture. Listen to the way the Proverbs put it in Proverbs 8 and verse 10 and 11. Accept my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is better than precious stones, and nothing desirable can compare with it. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What are we to remind people of? Well, certainly we're to remind people of the gospel, that Jesus lived He died and he rose again. None of us ever outgrow our spiritual need to depend on the power of the gospel. We need the power of the gospel after we've been believers for 20 or 30 or more years just as much as we needed the power of the gospel on the day that we got saved. It's the power of the gospel that reconciles us to God, that we are in a right relationship with God because we're justified through the blood of Jesus. And then it's the power of the resurrected Christ through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us to live life for God. So we continually remind people of the gospel. We remind the church of the gospel because we need it. We remind lost people of the gospel because they need to be saved. This is the focus that we never move beyond, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and all that that brings with it. We're also to remind people of the hope that comes from God. Salvation in Christ ensures eternal glory, that there is something beyond this life, that no matter how difficult the situation or the circumstance is, no matter how dark the hour seems in your life, it's temporary. Whatever you're going through right now, this seems like you're never going to get out of it. You don't know what the answer is to it in your life. You can come back to this truth that you have the hope of glory that comes from Jesus. And it helps you persevere. It helps you press on. It helps you take the next step. It helps you get up when you don't feel like getting up. Because you know that you have hope that God has guaranteed in your life. And then I think we're to remind people of what it means to live life with God. We died with him and we will live with him. We will reign with him. He's the one who guarantees our faithfulness. And none of us will ever exhaust our spiritual growth until we're in the presence of God. 
It's God's will that you be conformed to the image of Jesus. So our heart's desire should be that we're growing more and more to be like Jesus and experience that life that he has for us. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 12 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and with teaching. Workers for God who are not ashamed will constantly remind people and consistently remind people of the things of God. How can we be workers for God who are not ashamed? The second way is workers for God who are not ashamed will not fight unnecessarily about words. The scripture says here, charge them before God not to fight about words. To charge represents a command and it is reinforced by Paul's emphasis on the presence of God. So think about it this way. God is watching our service to him. Our fear of God and our reverence for God leads to a life of wisdom. And if we see God for who he is, and we understand ourselves for who we are, then we will be empowered to live a life of wisdom because we fear God, and that in itself is the beginning of wisdom. And this impacts every area of your life. You will not think about dividing life between the sacred and the secular. That, that is a false dichotomy. If you are in Christ, everything that you're doing is to be done as unto the Lord. Everything is sacred before the Lord because you belong to him. It will make a difference in your personal relationship with God, in your daily walk with Jesus. It will make a difference in your family life, what kind of husband or wife you are, what kind of father or mother you are, what kind of child you are. It will impact you practically on the day-to-day. It will make a difference in your friendships and what kind of friends you are as you serve other people and you seek to serve and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it will make a difference in your vocation because you will live for the glory of God. Everything that you do, you are charged to live for God. But he says specifically here to charge them not to fight about words. In other words, charge them not to strive about words that are unprofitable for the ruin of the hearers. This can also be translated as don't engage in word battles because that's a useless procedure. Don't wrangle over words. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? What is he referring to? Well, the context is important. Verse 16 indicates that we are to avoid irreverent and empty speech. Irreverent means godless, worldly chatter. It may be anything that adds to or takes away from the Word of God. So fighting about words includes irreverent and empty speech, which in part points to false teaching that confuses people with unprofitable words. The Bible shows us the marks of false teachers. They often begin in sound doctrine, but then they turn to twist the scripture on various matters. The Bible uses the language of false teachers creeping in unnoticed, uh, creating divisions and obstacles for people to overcome, preying on the spiritually naive or those who might not have very much biblical knowledge, and raising ignorant controversies that are helpful to nobody. 
Verse 17 identifies Hymenaeus and Philetus who are among those false teachers. They have departed from the truth, according to verse 18, saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, you might remember that Hymenaeus is mentioned along with Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Philetus are mentioned together only in this passage before us. Primarily, they were teaching that the resurrection of the believer was not literal, but merely a spiritual reality, and it had, it had already taken place. So the Christian would have no resurrection body to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. And they were leading people astray by this false teaching. Now, the pattern of false teachers and false teaching is fairly easy to identify with Scripture and with discernment. It goes something like this. They begin by distorting the truth, just adjusting it slightly. They use similar vocabulary, uh, similar, similar wording, similar circumstances, but they twist it just slightly so that people who have an ear to listen for things that would be biblical terms or biblical concepts might be drawn in and think, oh, well, that's a, that's a new nuance that they're teaching, or, oh, that's something that everybody else in the last 2,000 years just never thought of. And all of a sudden, we have distorted the truth by adjusting it slightly. And then comes the diluting of the truth, interpreting it according to modern mores. So in other words, people would uh, use some aspect of the scripture, but they would say, well, that's not what really what it means. Certainly that's an ancient interpretation. That was only for their culture and for their time. That's not what it really means. And then we begin to dilute the truth and confuse people further by our own desires rather than what God has actually taught. The last part of it is the destruction of the faith. People are just led astray and it is uh, to their own detriment and to the destruction of their faith. There's a distortion, there's a dilution, and then there is destruction. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 15 and 16. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You will know them by their fruits. A tree might be beautiful. It might offer shade in the summer. But if it is a fruit-bearing tree, its purpose is not to be beautiful, but to be bountiful. It's not to provide shade, but to provide fruit. And that fruit tree is judged by what it produces. So false teachers might use similar words. They might have biblical knowledge. They might appear to have some good personal qualities and yet be rotten to the core. Irreverent and empty speech produces godlessness. And it will spread like gangrene, according to the scripture. It is rotten to the core. It will ruin the faith of some. So I believe fighting about words includes the false teachers, but I think fighting about words also includes words that are secondary and may be more difficult to interpret. Now hear me clearly. The church stands for truth always. The Bible is true and trustworthy and sufficient because it's been given to us, breathed out by God. 
that said, someone said that it's not a debating society for minor details that might not be helpful in the church. 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Peter says in reference to some of Paul's teachings, there are some things that are hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Peter was not saying that what Paul said was unimportant or not of significance. He just said, hey, there's some things that are some deep waters here. And this is Peter speaking of Paul. And it would be the same thing for us. So I want to help you think through this in this way. There are what we would consider primary matters, secondary matters, and tertiary matters. Let me explain. Primary matters would be issues about the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in person, co-equal, co-eternal. This is non-negotiable. An understanding of man and sin and salvation by grace through faith, the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, who Jesus Christ is, the gospel, and so on. These are of first importance And they are indicators of orthodoxy. Now, I'll give you an example of this. I read an article just yesterday about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who are more commonly known as the Mormons. The Mormons do not believe in the triune God, nor do they believe in the right identity of who Jesus is biblically, nor do they believe that salvation is by grace through faith. So, therefore... They are outside of the boundaries of Christianity and anything that is even close to orthodoxy. It is not a Christian belief. And these primary matters make that abundantly clear. That's just one example of many. Secondary matters, details about how a church is governed, understandings of the Sabbath, details about some application of spiritual gifts, the finer details of eschatology and more are secondary matters. They're not heaven and hell determiners. They are secondary matters, meaning that churches should and do take positions on these issues, but there may not be lockstep agreement among all believers. Then there are tertiary matters. Tertiary simply means of third rank. These are issues on which people within a church may disagree. So let me give you some examples of that. It might be specific preferences over worship. It might be the timing or the frequency of the taking of the Lord's Supper. It might be how a church engages its community for ministry and for mission. It might be details about how we carry out the making of disciples. These are issues that are not unimportant but they are not of utmost importance. And these references are representative and not exhaustive. And I also want to say there may be some disagreement about what qualifies as secondary or tertiary, but my point remains. And we need to understand this according to what Paul is teaching us here in this passage. Workers for God who are not ashamed will not fight unnecessarily about words. We will absolutely contend for uh, the primary issues of the faith. We will absolutely fight for the truth. We will draw the line in the sand and we will make sure that we are standing solidly on what is true and right and what's been delivered 
once and for all to the saints. But we will not and must not get caught up in things that are not of first order of importance to the point of arguing. Does that mean we can't discuss them? Of course not. There are all kinds of things that we should and must discuss from time to time. We can disagree on them. We can talk through them. But it helps us to understand uh, what it is that we're to be emphasizing for the most part. And then how can we be workers for God who are not ashamed, third and finally? Workers for God who are not ashamed will correctly teach the word of truth. Verse 15 uses the phrase, be diligent. It means to have a zealous persistence to accomplish a particular objective. Correctly teaching the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Correctly handling the word of truth. Now I want to draw this point out because I think it's so important. The Apostle Paul was nearing the end of his earthly life. He could have brought up any number of things that that were important to him or maybe that he was thinking about as he was approaching the end of his earthly life. But what was he primarily concerned with? He was primarily concerned with safeguarding the truth. That's what concerned him. And it's no different for us today because just a generation can turn a church or a movement away from the things of God and away from the truth of the Bible. And we have to constantly be vigilant. There are, uh, throughout church history, churches that have fallen by the wayside that were once bastions of truth. They were places where you could have gone and been confident that what was being taught in the church by the leadership and by the people was consistent with the word of God. You could know that they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were going to teach you how to live for God and they were going to tell you the truth about what life with God is all about and what the world is all about and what eternity is all about. And today they don't even hold to it at all. And they are so far from the truth that they are apostate in what they believe. And we must be vigilant to correctly teach the word of truth. Correctly teaching or rightly dividing literally means to cut straight. A stonemason or a carpenter was to cut straight if they were building something. It's the same today. You don't want somebody building a house for you that's going to cut something crooked because the whole thing's going to turn out wrong. In the same way, you don't want to be in a church that's cutting the truth of God crookedly and leading you astray or leading your family astray. You want it to be cut straight. You want it to be told to you as it is. And this is completely in contrast with the deceptive methods of the false teachers. We're to do our best to correctly handle the word of truth. And the charge to cut straight or to deliver the word of God is for all of us. It's for those of us who stand before you and have an official capacity to teach the Word of God. It's for those of you that are leading Bible fellowship classes and discipleship groups. It's for moms and dads who are trying to lead their family in the right way. It's a charge to all of us. And rightly dividing could also be used in those days to refer to the handling of a sword. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Swords are meant to cut and to hack and to wound and to kill with. 
And the word of truth is for pricking men in their hearts and killing their sins. The word of God is not committed only to God's ministers, and it's not committed to them to amuse people with its glitter, nor to charm them with the jewels in its hilt, but to conquer their souls for Jesus. And church, I want you to know that the Bible cannot mean whatever we want it to mean. You might have heard someone say about a particular interpretation of the scripture, well, that's just your interpretation. Here's the idea that's being communicated. You interpret the Bible your way, I interpret the Bible my way, and somebody else interprets the Bible their way, and everybody is equally correct. That cannot be. Truth is exclusive. Furthermore, truth, by definition, is that which is in accordance with reality. It's what is right and true and trustworthy. And when we approach the Bible, we ask some basic questions. What does it say? It can't say what it never said. What does it mean? It can't mean what it never meant. And then how does it apply to our lives? And there are some basic principles of hermeneutics that are important for all of us to understand in the interpretation of the Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God and is therefore true, trustworthy, and authoritative. That's the foundation. Listen, if you get that one wrong, you're going to end up way off base. That's the foundation. And if you can't understand that basic, you should not even consider yourself a Christian because you're not believing that God would be truthful in communicating to us the things that we need to know. And Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Scripture is to be interpreted in context. Text without context is pretext, and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. There are entire cults that are built on a phrase in the Scripture or one verse in the Scripture, and they build on that because they take it to mean something that it never meant to begin with, and the total story of the Scripture clearly shows that that's not what it meant, but they build the whole house on that. And therefore, the whole thing is faulty. And then Scripture never contradicts Scripture. And the Holy Spirit will never lead you to do anything that is contradictory to the Scripture. These are just the basics of how we approach God's Word. Workers for God who are not ashamed will correctly teach the Word of truth. And then here is the result of it all. Workers who are not ashamed will bear the characteristics of genuine salvation. Look again now at verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Genuine believers will never fall away because God will keep them. The seal of every believer is that the Lord knows who are his, those who are his in Jesus. As I say so often, the gospel by which you were saved is the gospel by which you are kept by God. And it's the gospel that will see you safely home. If you are in Jesus, you belong to him. The Lord knows you because you are his he will keep you Jesus said nobody could pluck us out of his hand and then the Lord will sanctify all of us who are his in Jesus and that's why it says 
let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. I conclude with this brief story about Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott is the well-known missionary who served in Ecuador and was martyred in 1956 at the age of 28 by the indigenous peoples there, along with some others. If you have not read his story or you don't know uh, his story, you should get a copy of the shadow of, uh, Under the Shadow of the Almighty and read it because it tells the story of Jim Elliott's life and, and just the profound things that God did through it. But before he went to Ecuador, he was a student at Wheaton College. In reference to his grades, he wrote in his diary while he was still at Wheaton, and I quote, My grades came through this week and were, as expected, lower than last semester. However, I make no apologies, and I admit that I've let them drag a bit, listen to this, in order to study the Bible, in which I seek the degree, and he gives the abbreviation, A-U-G, approved unto God. May we draw near to the heart of God and live our lives in such a way that we are approved unto God because of what Jesus has done for us, because we submit ourselves to him, because we do everything as unto the Lord, because we're placing our hope in what God has promised. And we know that one day, one day, the Lord is going to take us. The good shepherd is going to take us by the hand. And when the good shepherd takes us by the hand, he's going to lead us safely home. And all that we've been promised and all that we've hoped for and all that we've longed for and all that we've prayed for is going to be in living color in the presence of God for all of eternity. And it will all be worth it. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, we're so thankful today that you've given us your word. We believe it as truth, inspired to us, given to us as a gift by the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would protect us from false teachers. You would protect us from the world and the flesh and the devil and things that would take us off track from who you want us to be. And may we fix our eyes and our hope on Jesus because he alone is worthy. Help us to live our lives in a way that we are approved unto God, that you are pleased when you look at us as our heavenly father. You are pleased with your children because we are depending on you. Our faith is in you. God, without faith, it's impossible to please you. Help us to live in faith and dependence on who you are and what you've done for us. And help us to know and be able to discern the things of first importance and to focus on the good news about Jesus as we share it with our own families and as we share it to the ends of the earth. God, I don't know what the spiritual needs are here in this place today, but you do. There might be somebody here today that's just discouraged. They're carrying a heavy weight and they're burdened by it and, and they need to lean into you and give that burden to you, to cast all their cares on you because you care for them. I pray for any who are here who might not have yet repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. I pray, pray that today they would consider uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and now lives again and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That they would consider what it means to turn from their sins and to turn to Jesus and be eternally saved. And I pray, God, that they would take that step of faith before they leave this place. 
Maybe there's some that need to be baptized next Sunday. They already know you, but they've not followed through in baptism. And they need to take that public stand and make that public profession of faith in Jesus. And I, I pray they desire to do so. And they'd say yes and be willing to follow Jesus in believer's baptism. And, oh, God, may you encourage us all to know that you are faithful. You keep us. You bless us. You use us. We want to be instruments in your hands. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.